Well, hello. Uh, welcome to Le Cadeau, the podcast. And uh, my guest today is Hector Lasala, who teaches architect at uh, the university here in Lafayette. And um, he and I are discussing uh, an architectural installation in my backyard. And I know he knows a lot about a lot of things. And so I invited him to join me today because this is all about the gift of healing and healing comes in lots of forms. So welcome. Thank you, Becca. Thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. So um, because you're an architect, you said something earlier about the word aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just start from there? Sure. Even as a student, I was told the wrong meaning of the word aesthetic. Uh, it, was, it was presented as the rules of what makes things beautiful. But actually... What it means is that the arousal of pleasure when we are in the presence of beauty. Because the opposite is anesthetic, which is basically when we don't feel anything. Wow. Yeah. And um, so, for instance, uh, I quoted just today to my students this uh, phrase by Dorothy Soule. Uh, she's a German writer. And she says, the absence of beauty is the most profound Deprivation. Deprivation. Exactly. And so, you know, the kind of um, result that is having on our culture is the fact that most of us, or most people, have very, very um, narrow and very deprived lives because they don't encounter beauty on a daily basis. Yeah, it's almost like sterile. Sterile, correct. Wow. Right. And so what happens is that when we are in the presence of something beautiful, our soul comes out and delights. And it, but when we are in the presence of brutal ugliness, we retreat. It's the same way when we are in front of somebody who is a bully or, or, or aggressive or, or, or vulgar. We just retreat. Right. So how our psyche responds to ugliness is different than what happens when we respond to beauty one makes us come alive the other ones we retreat wow and you, know, you think of when you live in an apartment and when you're poor and there's nothing in the apartment and then you start to fill it with beautiful things that mean something to you then you make it into something that's desirable in a place did you actually want to go home to you make a home correct when you add your own beauty what about the word help me with this because I don't quite know what I'm asking but if a person is a holy if a, if a person is holy but they are an ascetic what does that mean how does that term apply to people aesthetic, like a monk or not a monk or aesthetic monk or you mean ascetic yeah that's not the same word huh no but are they close no ascetic ascetism is it's being seen as probably uh, deeply affected by some of the scripture of St. Paul, which was very anti-body, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the whole idea of even celibacy being the superior state, spiritually and all that, right now it's, it's, it has come under a great deal of, uh, of suspicion. Right, that's in the Western world. But like there are some monks, like in the Buddhist world, some are ascetic and they live in the monastery and some are not ascetic and have families. That's what I was just... Oh, yeah. In well, general, but that I, I get, I, I understand. I think 
I think the, the body basically is our vehicle for encountering the world. And, and, and that's the problem. See, there's, there's a problem between being fully present or just, and just living out of our heads. It's two different right. things. And, and what I'm afraid of is that Christianity in some ways has been labeled as anti-body. You know, the body was something suspicious. Exactly. Feeling pleasure was actually something, you know, that... I mean, I grew, you know went to it's a Catholic a school. It's a thing. So yes, I understand. <laughs> and, and was so and was so uh, astonishing to me is that Jesus just seemed to be somebody who was in his body the whole time. You know exactly. what I mean? Exactly. So, so I think um, what we're suffering from is this this um, one polar kind of existence, which is mm-hmm. very rigid, rigorous, logic. Uh, I don't know, systemic. You know. Right. And uh, and then of course. Be living in rooms, in spaces, in offices that are really very devoid of any beauty. So, so that mindset is the one that people exist on a daily basis. And, right. then they, and then they get on a car and then go on Johnston Street. That's scary. You know, and drive about 30 minutes <laughs> in that horror. And then they get into a subdivision. Uh, they get inside the house and they don't go anywhere. And, you know, they're watching whatever. And so their existence in some way has been uh, narrow, exposure to, you know, to landscapes, to parks, to taking sidewalks. Uh, exactly. You know. I mean, and how do you make cubicle offices beautiful? You know, and because we have this functionality, mm-hmm. and uh, I, I hear what you're saying. So, but see, that's changing. Um, the, the new office space because I bring my students to visit new architectural firms, for instance. Right. And uh, we visited a, a, one in Houston and one in Dallas. They are removing the cubicles altogether. Uh, so now architects who are working on a project, from the most lower intern to a principal owner, are all in one room, and they're all discussing the project together, which is actually the organic way of, of, of interacting oh, exactly. together. And this particular firm on Saturdays, they all get together and do a community project like plant trees or go somewhere and clean up. So my sense is that there's certain kind of transition happening where uh, the old typical 1950s cubicle existence is, and of course, you know, Google and Apple in a way were the pioneers, they kind of destroyed the, 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 that kind of environment. Yeah, they created teams. Correct. And then Correct. if you if you remove the walls, it's like removing fences. Correct. Correct. That's a good thing. And in a, a certain economy, economy I don't well, economy. No, uh, being equals. Yeah, yeah, equality. Equality. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so in a way, uh, the, the owner of the firm is one of many, and that person now participates in the conversations, and and somehow that hierarchy. That keeps us all separate is becoming to you know to kind of collapse, to the benefit of everybody, especially the higher ups, because they were isolated in the little room, you know. Exactly. And and so the vitality that comes from working in a team, they're removed from that. Well, and it also, I know in this country, not so much this area of this country, but we are a touch-deprived society. Oh, absolutely. Now, you know, we still hug and we still kiss and it takes you a while to say goodbye when you're leaving your relatives or your friends over here because because we do that. And I'm sure in South America. Oh, 
We hugging kids all the time. <laughs> exactly. So, so there's that that can happen when you take the walls down. Yes. Well, you know, I, I, I've been to Paris twice in the last uh, six months mm-hmm. <laughs> or a year. Uh, and, you know, the reason that Paris is such, a, such an amazing experience for American kids is the pleasure of walking. And there's always something new, you know. Right. The, the, there's so many surprises um, because life is lived in the open. Right. And that is something that they are not used to, you know. Um, so in one block, they may be aroused by a smell, by a painting, by something that they bought, by something they ate. You know, there's, there's so much richness on a, on a city block, you know. But here you have to go in your car and you go to that store and then you come home and, and you don't, you're not relating with anything except what's at the destination. Correct. Because we don't live, yeah, that yeah. makes sense to me. So how do you see healing and space connected? Because this whole thing is about le cadeau, which is the gift of healing. And healing, uh, I perceive it as an art. Oh, absolutely. Because it is is like art, it is inspired, and it is something that is done in spirit. And when we do healing work, we speak of the body and the mind and the spirit as as the holistic model instead of just physically your organs are physically what is wrong, where you're looking at that picture. How could that apply to beauty in our homes or beauty in our offices, to what you spoke of initially? Yeah. Well, um I think the best model possible, of course, is a walkable city, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where where we, you know, can leave from work to go have lunch with friends, and you know, you walk this beautiful sidewalk. Uh, so everything is somewhat uh, approachable by by walking. You know? Okay, and uh, and of course, the interior spaces uh, provide also great richness in terms of textures and colors and, and yeah, of because the sitting encourages people to get together with the we are we are doing this podcast right after the flood of 2016 mm-hmm. so as people are redoing their homes and struggling with this what couldn't they look forward to or what kind of beauty could they put that maybe they never thought of before so when the rebuilding and they move in they have something that they know or intend to be healing that wasn't there before the flood. What what yeah. can you speak of the interior in that way? Well, let's talk exterior because I think that okay. the, I think that one thing that everybody could have uh, is the idea that this lawn, which is such a such a burden, you know, you have to, and and for the most part, it's always hot, too hot to go or too cold to go. So it becomes this texture, but it doesn't have or provide any kind of to me, um, there's a new direction where actually, instead of actually bringing plants from somewhere, we begin to plant things that almost need no care. In fact, I have a friend uh, who is, uh, he called himself an urban uh, landscaper. Marcus. Marcus, yes. Yeah. And he creates amazing gardens, and, and it's all local stuff. It's basically... It, native, it, yeah. It's a native land. So, so, and then you can eat them. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's things that you can eat. And so that will create, I think, a great deal of joy and, uh, and pleasure to have places outdoors to go uh, and then food to eat and at the same time gathering spaces for the family and for the kids to play and all that. 
so the external, I think, is something that is very doable, you know. Right, and then every house in every subdivision would not look identical to every other house because exactly. you'd have your unique yard space, your unique garden. That makes yeah. sense. And I think um, the, other, the other part, of course, is that we are addicted to our, you know, televisions and computers and all that. <laughs> and to a certain degree, you know, that is basically uh, removing the family time. Uh, I know that I grew up home where we ate the three meals together. Yeah, we did too. <laughs> and especially the dinners because we didn't have to leave. Uh, my parents, for instance, my father was a judge. And um, and so, you know, he had many friends. And I remember them having at least twice a week somebody over at the house for drinks or talk. Uh, so it seemed like that kind of what used to be such a, a delight, especially for us kids, you know, being up and, and hearing what the adults were talking about. So there's a certain kind of um, communal uh, relationships that are now suffering. Yeah, when when I was growing up, uh, my parents played Blu-ray with everybody else's parents. Yeah. And you learned all kind of stuff hearing <laughs> them talking. <laughs> I know. And we would make the coffee and serve, or if they had ice cream or cake we would serve and and we were taught to serve mm -hmm. and you put the cups in a certain place and the spoons in a certain place and you had a napkin for everything and i mean it, it's far from being social or stuffy but you knew how to take oh, care no, of no, guests no, no absolutely the other and thing there's that, not a lot of that anymore no. now that you say it and of course you know again if you go to europe mm -hmm. uh and of course, that's where our culture came. But the fact is that we didn't maintain it because we didn't right. continue to provide the things that keeps uh, cultures alive. Right. And that is the public squares. You know, for instance, yes. the, the way that I grew up, at, at the end of dinner, everybody left the, the house and went out to the square. So my father would go and talk to all the men in the corner and they would discuss politics and all that. And it was really interesting because as, as teenagers, you know, barely 13, 14, you begin to, your radar begins to mm -hmm. focus on, on the females. And I don't know how long this European tradition had traveled. But the way it was is that we boys would walk the square clockwise. And the girls would walk the square counterclockwise. counterclockwise. Oh, my goodness. So the, and the parents were watching, of course. Everybody was there. So that meant that you had one chance. The guys <laughs> had one chance to stop, you know? And of course, we were so nervous, you know? And so sometimes, yes, ah, we missed it, you know? Right. So we had to go around again. And of course, every night we eventually did it, you know, and we all started walking the same direction. But what I'm saying is, you know, there were so many rituals that made it like continuous. You know, there was something very healthy about that. Right. It was creating community. Exactly. exactly. And and one of the things I've, I've made an effort to do, and, and all we can do is make efforts, because how do we maintain community today? You know, so I've been inviting people who do healing work or are interested in healing work to get together once a month for the past 10 or so years just to let us know each other. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that was a good phenomenon, and, and I'm I'm kind of upset that it's not quite the same anymore. What's that? And that was our walk on down, in downtown Lafayette. Well, we still have it. No, I know we don't, but I, I'm going to tell you why it's not the same. Uh, the Nothing is like it used to be, <laughs> Hector. No, no, but the, the our walk, remember, there was, there was 
14, 16 art galleries. Right. All along Jefferson Street. Yeah. And people and people at the, each gallery, you know, they had a table with wine and cheese. And the whole thing was that you were going to walk from one end to another and visit all the galleries and see all the new artists. And, and, and in a way, nobody bought art. It was just the excuse was to come and be together. Yeah. That was a very healthy thing. What's happening now, sad to say, is that the ACA is now open. And if you go over there, you can see that that's basically where all people stay, which is nothing wrong. I mean, I love the ACA. I was part of making no, it happen. No, I totally understand, yeah. But the point is that all those little... Like uh, the mom and pop art galleries are... They yeah. close up. Um, so in a way, it was ironic that this was supposed to be promoting the arts everywhere and the poor galleries, you know, mm -hmm. kind of went down. But I, I'm a believer that we do have this hunger for socialization, for community building. Yeah. Because you give them an excuse, the art walk, and people leave the suburbs to go downtown. Exactly. And all of a sudden, we were just walking up and down, seeing people we hadn't seen in years. And it was fun. And it, nobody bought art. Yeah. But I just had fun. And of course, it happens in all our festivals. Totally. So we are, in true. a sense, still, you know, we're fortunate that we have, uh, you know, a great deal of, of uh, recovering our, our French roots. So we're more fortunate than most Americans. Exactly. We're not, we are not like America, but we are definitely Americans yeah. and we have but, our own flair. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think Festival International is, is fabulous. And of course, the, the, the Creole and Cajun Festival coming up. So all those things are really good. I just think, though, that it has to take something special for it to happen. It should be more... Every day. Every day. Yeah. I understand. And, of course, the cities don't provide it. You know, they just... That's why, basically, um, I'm becoming an advocate for us to begin to build uh, more urban, you know, closer to the, to, the, to the downtown. I've been advocating, you know... Uh, transforming Jefferson from Johnston all the way to Pinhook, right? Yeah. I mean, it's all abandoned. Can you imagine, you know, developing Jefferson the way it is, cross Johnston and keep going? You have the university with 18,000 students. Which is a jewel. And, and, yeah. and, there's, and there's no, in any way, no commerce to attract these people. So I think that, that the answer is, has always been urban, urban scale okay. or small town. Small town or urban, but See, suburban. I'm from Scott, and I think Scott just has yes. everything we need. Of course, I so, think y'all should just come to Scott <laughs> once in a while. <laughs> but in other words, what we're missing altogether is is the phenomena that happened right after World War II, which is basically the suburbanization of America. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, we got in expensive cars, and developers started developing and selling this dreamland in the suburbs. Yeah. And we kill basically the cities. I think in some ways we uh that was kind of the same time that medicine was sort of looking for sterilization and the hospitals were gonna take care of everything. So in some ways we turned our backs on a lot of things that were good and what were working for us. Right. To go to something that we thought would solve all our problems and it's gonna be so much better and it's the American dream. Well, the dream wasn't that much a dream come true mm. and so we need to look back to before the dream and 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 see what we can pull of that that always worked that we tended to turn our backs on 
like we abandoned what really was good to pursue a dream exactly. and when the dream doesn't work out well then what was really good and let's let's put on pull on that reality of goodness that we know still exists and i think community always brings that forward well you know to me healing is is holistic um there's a great deal of well-being that is just the the norm the datum right when you're living a life that you engage with nature, you engage with others, you have pleasure in what you're doing as a job or whatever, that is that is health, you know? Exactly. And and so and of course that doesn't mean that I will not get sick with something or another, but but at the level of mental well being, mm-hmm. I think being embedded in a community at, at every level, from family to neighbors to society at large. And feel connected with what's going on. And, and again, we are fortunate because we do have that. Right. I think that's kind of where uh, the deprivation is. We're lacking so much of that. So how can having a place of beauty or living in beauty help our mental illness? Well, you have to be connected to what it is you have on the walls. Okay. It doesn't even have to be art. Like, for instance, um, my kid's grandmother, who died recently, she had a wall with maybe... 20 or 30 frame pictures of the whole family going back years. Wow, you know? yeah. And I remember when my kids were young, they were always climbing and asking questions. And there was something very fascinating about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, she had quilts and she had all these things. So it's not even fine art. It's, it's about things that somehow resonate. You With know? your heart. Yeah. Right. Like we're in this recording studio and they have sponges on the wall. And I'm not sure how we resonate with that, but it makes for good acoustics, so we can take. Well, they actually <laughs> nice textures, and and they are kind of. <laughs> we're trying, <laughs> but you know, and again, I think that the promotion of art has also been misplaced. I think that what I would like to be much larger with that. Any object that in some way resonates with you, it can be a basket that you bought, you know, it can be, you know, uh, the apron of your great-grandmother, you know, and you may want to probably put it as an icon. I feel that objects that have resonance with us, you know, in my house, um, I, uh, when I went back home about four years ago, I go to the beach and I like to beachcomb, you know. And your home is in what country? El Salvador. Okay. And it's only two hours from Houston, so it's not very far. But but I'm on the Pacific Ocean. Oh, wow. And so I, be, I go beach coming, and I always come back with so much, you know. But this time, I found a piece of, of driftwood that was probably almost six feet. Wow. And it had, been, it, it had been timbered, but it was actually still part of a branch, you know. It was really a weird piece. Did you get to bring it home? I brought it home. Did you have to buy a ticket like the musicians have? No, I wrapped it up, yeah, and, <laughs> okay. and, and brought it home. <laughs> But it was there, and, and, and I forgot about it. And, um, and so about a year and a half ago, I installed it. But I realized that it had cracked in one area. I said, oh, my God. But, you know, I said, well, I'm going through a life change, and, you know, the crack is actually a good memory, you know. So instead of trying to glue it together, I left it separate. Right. So in a way, you know, I had just gone through a divorce. So, so this, is, this is where I am, you know. Right, right. So in other words, 
when you find meaning in things, you, you keep them so that they can remind you, you know. And when I hear you use the word beauty, um, that Native Americans speak of beauty with the capital B. Oh, really? Like, like beauty is, that's, that's it's a almost like a part of God. Yeah. You know, oh, it, absolutely. And, and so when I hear you speak, I think you're using the word beauty with a capital B because it's personal and it's, it's, it's from your heart to or with whatever you, 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 yeah, that makes sense. It's a relationship. In other words, before there was artists, uh, all through history, people have made or discovered icons. Right. And, 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 and something in this thing speaks to me. Right. And in some way, they keep it around because it, it tells them something. And it may not even be that clear, but every time I see it, I sense that it's telling me something. Well, I have a friend, and I went to her house, and we, we spoke for a long time. And, and when I left, she, she picked up a half a brick, and it had S-O on it. It said so. Okay, so she kept it. So we kind of figured it really doesn't matter what we say. I'm like, so? So? But well, we have to say it. <laughs> I know? love it. Okay. I love it. So then later on, I found one that, that had the word C-O on it, like co, like, like, and so for me, when you buy, she has hers and I have mine, but the whole deal was it, what we do is not necessarily that important. It's like so, but that we do it together. Like we co-create, yeah. mm-hmm. like she and I are co-create with, with God or beauty with a capital B. That makes sense. So I have that brick in, or my half of my brick in a, in a very, um, in a place where I can see it often. Exactly. Because it reminds me I'm not by myself. Exactly. So I'm half a brick short, not a whole brick <laughs> short. <laughs> see, and, and, and that's the thing. Great icons have multiple meanings. Exactly. You know? They just never run out. Yeah. Know? So I think, in other words, culture has been narrow. To listen to symphonies or to go to Broadway, and to me, that is even narrow. You know, it's that, but it's much more. Right. Uh, and so it become kind of like this high term that people think, well, you know, I don't really like Beethoven, so that I, you know, that means that I'm not really cultured. No, find whatever it is. I mean, as long as it makes contact with you, keep it around. It's going to keep on stimulating you. You know. Right. When we, how can or or how can we use beauty on the interior in hospitals or in you know, to help people with who are not in their homes. Oh my God! Yeah, yeah hospital rooms are. I know they have to be obviously, you know, sterile to a certain degree, but that doesn't mean that they have to look <laughs> sterile. You know, exactly. Uh, I think that actually, you know, there's some. You know, I was married to to a great artist, uh, and the sad, sad thing is that you know, being an artist is really hard. Because, yes, because people don't buy art anymore. And, uh, and so what I'm sensing is that there is a lot of artists who have surplus of paintings that instead of just having galleries in downtown, maybe we should have galleries in, in the hospitals, you know? <laughs> uh, well, in other words, they have them stuck sense. somewhere. You know, just try it out. In fact, this person is going to be looking at your painting, you know, for like five days and there's going to be something about that piece that may actually speak to you, you know? Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's a thought. 
Um, you know, uh, when Sherry and I went uh, to the um, uh, to a museum, a gallery. Um, in America the, or France in, in or in France, El Salvador? In France, okay. In <laughs> In Paris, and uh, and it was a show by contemporary Chinese artists who still live in China, which was kind of what blew me away. Wow. Me away. And and one of them was brave, really really brave, and he had uh, five figures sculptures. They were all males. And one was a general, another one was a teacher, another one was a businessman, one was a farmer, and I don't remember what the fifth one was. But they all had the, the suits and, and all that, you know. Right. But they were naked underneath. And they looked like children underneath, if you know what I mean. Uh-huh. And, and the same person had also done a film of, he, he I think it was a he, he went to those mass production, you know, where they actually build the stuff we buy. Yes. And so this poor girl is doing the same thing 12 hours in a row. Exactly. Doing one thing. Like Mardi Gras beads. Exactly. Oh, really? We buy them from China, yeah. yeah. And the sad thing is that in China, the only choices you have, you cannot make a choice. These are the five choices. This is true. If, if you don't choose that, you can choose. I mean, this is, this is the only five options you have. Right. And, and so the film he made is that the girl who is doing this routine work all of a sudden stops and begins to dance. And you can see that she's a great dancer. And then there's another guy who's doing another boring job and all of a sudden picks up a guitar and begins to play. To me, it just struck me that this population has... has condemn people to to betray their gifts for this for this thing you know it, it right. was really really painful um so i feel though that to the degree that we also here we we also don't prepare i mean I, the reason i'm telling you is because i've been talking to just first time freshmen today. exactly and uh, and most of them have never had really in college, I mean in high school, an opportunity to, to really ponder what they want to do for the rest of their lives. So that they, they are still being either persuaded by parents or by status or whatever. And don't you think they're kept in a state of busyness so that they don't oh, have time oh, to think? Yeah. So my advice to them was, I said, look, it, it's, it's very healthy you know, the, the stage when, when your parents were your world, I said, that's a very healthy thing that we have to go through. And then, of course, you go to high school and you have your tribe, and that's also kind of important. But you know what? The tribe is gone. Now you're free to begin to choose wow. your next level of life. I said, don't, don't go just on the, on the thing that this is Heiko revisited. You, you can actually now pause and begin to make decisions without necessarily having to just follow this kind of a habit, you know? And they have more than five choices. <laughs> exactly. That's a grace. Exactly. That's a good thing. Absolutely. Wow. I know. So what do you think, um, uh, you know, like over here in, in, in Acadiana, 
everybody is some kind of artist. Like we have musicians and cooks, cooks mm-hmm. and writers and just, you know, okay. But what is an artist? I mean, do you have to do the, the, the gifts define you as an artist or can't, you know, my grandma could cook. My grandpa could cook. You know, everybody can cook. So who, where, how, what makes art, what makes someone who is an artist different from someone who just has creative gifts? Because I believe, and I've understood lately more than ever, that creativity can can help you go through something and come out on the other side. So the whole creative piece is very healing. Mm-hmm. So what is an artist? How would you uh, explain or or talk about, not necessarily define, because it's beyond. Well, I think that, again, it's something that we have narrow. Uh, I think I, I like the word artisan. It's, it's, uh-huh. it's a little more, more open. And uh, Yeah, but it's sort of like not fine art. So you think no, of an artist, like, yeah. oh, you're just an artisan. Yeah, but, but basically, <laughs> I think that we have to basically just get over that. Because, so again, we went to Paris. Yeah. Uh, there was, uh, we just run by, just by accident. There is uh, there was a railroad that used to go through a part of Paris, and uh, and it's gone. So they actually make a park out of where the railroad used to be over uh. the street. But of course, it was supported by arches, mm-hmm. and so the government over there turned, they put glass and walls and all that, and they created a place for artisans. Wow! So you had people doing very very. You know, some of them just made uh, lamps. And some of them were actually, I think, made chocolates. Ooh, that's a great art. <laughs> I know. So what I'm saying, though, is is I think that there, there was a certain kind of, of, you know, they could have filled it up also with artists and painters and sculpture. And again, those are necessary. But it limits the, the, the threshold of uh, that anything well made is an art. You exactly. Know? Like when Vermilionville opened, there was a guy who made hoop nets and fishing nets, and exactly there's an art to doing that. You know, it's it's not easy, and it's and but it has to be done well. Or there, it's art. Like it's art. If we measure anything by just quality, uh, then there's no threshold. There's exactly. no there's no there's no distinction. You know. Yeah. In fact. Did you see the new film that they did at uh, at Vermilionville? They just first released cousins. It. No, no. Uh, I just went to the opening maybe maybe a month ago. Dance halls? I don't know. Give me a clue. Well, they in <laughs> fact know. in fact Lafayette High School uh, uh, film students. No, uh, oh, they filmed didn't. it and and they and they had a friend of mine who who is from DC that I think helped with the script. Uh, she works with the Smithsonian. And they had a cook, they had a violin maker, they had, I mean, they had like 12 or 16 of the artisans who participate in Vermilionville, and it's a great film, you need to see it. It's I really do, wonderful. I want to. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, again, we're kind of um, recognizing, and, and, and not only recognizing it, but give it the honor they deserve. Right. You know? So, do you think that being an artist is like a mindset. Do people who do art, they don't necessarily have to think differently than people who don't do art. What do you think? Talk more about that whole and how is art healing? I mean, we both believe that. Yeah. Well, you know, 
creativity cannot be um, segmented into just art creation. Exactly. Because to me, great scientists, great writers, you know, exactly. in other words, the creativity swings all the way through. Well, and then let me just throw this in. One of the reasons we're still alive as a culture of who we are is we were creative survivors. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and when this crop and that, what, what you couldn't do for a living anymore, well, hell, we'll just do something else. And we're in the middle of that again. But so there's a whole lot of creativity in our culture, which I think is reflected in music and art. But it's just basically we're going to pull together and do this, however. And so we have to think how we're going to do it if we can't, like right now, you know, we're living in shelters. And so there's something too culturally. We are a creative people. And I think maybe it's just because we have to survive together, huh? Again, I think that we have segment it and, and make a hierarchy. Right. And so therefore the arts, when you say the arts, you we all immediately assume what we're talking about, which is this refined you Les know, yeah, fine yeah. art. I personally don't think that is that strict and, and I don't think that uh which you don't do it because basically we are also diminishing the value of the things that give us a lot of pleasure even though they are not in the Louvre, right? Exactly. <laughs> and in fact, if you go to the Louvre, you see that in some of the floors, it's all ordinary things that ordinary people did, you know? So, so it's only when you get to the big salons that you begin to see that, you know? Um, you know, it's a story, talking about France, that basically after the revolution, mm-hmm. uh, because the people who basically supported the artists were the nobility. Exactly. Because it was a form of propaganda. And of course, they made them look prettier than they actually were. (laughs) (laughs) And in their horses and whatever, right? Exactly. And so here you got the the revolutionists and all these artists don't have any income, right? But of course, it was the liberation in a way because now they could paint whatever they wanted. So I feel that in a sense, we have a nobility still at the level of mental gestalt you know that the right, artists right. Are, and that has kept some artists in a sense bound by expectations and i think for instance they may find themselves happier not just painting paintings that one day is going to make it to to new york but actually making something else you know what i mean well you know when I, after i was married um and i had a couple of children i uh I was living in Baton Rouge, and I I took uh, art lessons with a, a woman there named Della Storms, who uh, I think she's still living. I haven't heard from her in years. And, and she said, I, I just want you to go home and paint something, uh, excuse me, and sketch something and bring it back. We weren't painting yet. And I, all I know is that I liked to draw, but I never thought I was an artist. You know? I didn't have much time for that. But anyway, so... I remember I did a sketch of three onions, and I and I brought them back, and uh, and she said, "Oh, you are really an artist," and I'm like, I was like so confused, like what? Yeah. She says, "If you can see the beauty in an onion, then you understand what exactly. art is about." No, exactly. And like, exactly. so like, I promise you, I never thought of myself as an artist that would ever show at the Louvre, but I got this concept then, yeah. and I think that concept is lost. 
No, and absolutely. I think that's what I hear you saying, huh? Absolutely. We have segmented and broken things down into such strict little boundaries. And, and life is not that way. I mean, no. It is not that way. Um, so the last time I was in El Salvador, we went to probably the oldest, one of the oldest cities still around, you know. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so we were, e and we were eating, you know, this great food and music was playing. But we're in the square. And I said, well, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just go take, check it out. You know? oh, wait, were you going around the outside of the square now or not? You weren't at the No, no. <laughs> but I was, but the, 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 there were all these uh, native people that have made all kinds of beautiful things. And I, I'm a right. sucker for that, right? Right. So I started walking around and I was just in amazement at the beauty and that they were different from one to the other. They were not copying some kind of pattern. You know, each of them had a very particular expression. And so, of course, I bought a lot of them, you know. Mm -hmm. but, but the point is, um, just kind of to wrap it up, I think that beauty is as necessary as oxygen. I mean, really, truly. And, uh, and I don't mean beauty at the level of, you know, okay, I'm talking about the ordinary, whatever you, everyday yeah, beauty. And whatever you deem to be beautiful. Exactly. I, yeah. And I think that basically by putting it so high up, people don't recognize it as something that is necessary for existence. Or even accessible. Inaccessible. I got you. Right, right. Yeah. And so what happens then is that that function that art generates in us, you know, the arousal of, of attention and, and, and excitement and beauty is missing from so many. And right. so, therefore, they are deprived, really. Like, like I told you, Dorothy Soul says, you know, that the absence of beauty is the most profound form of deprivation. Wow. That's just amazing to me. It's true. I, I understand, and I see, I see that. Um, and we often don't think of beauty until everything is done in a place. And then, well, what can we do? And then we just go to the store and get what's there. We don't mm. often think of um, personalizing mm -hmm. and even if you just personalize with something from your own yard it becomes more beautiful than just something yeah. that everybody else bought from the department store I know. to end with a story of course um, as you know Jillian uh, Johnson Johnson yes you know she, she's a great example because she was an artist graduate you know she created art but she came to the conclusion very early on her own that the kind of art that she had been taught uh, would not keep her alive, you know, in terms of... And so she started creating more art more accessible to everybody. You know, right. so she started Parish Inc., right? Right. And then she started making things, you know, transfer on T-shirts that were very much local. People knew what they were wearing. There was something very exciting and empowering for wearing one of her T-shirts, you exactly. know? Exactly. And, of course, the fact that we miss her so much it was because she was such a, 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 a culture generator yes, she for really her was. age, you know? Yeah. And so here you have somebody with a degree in art that chooses instead to transfer that kind of skill to things that people wear. In a down-to-earth way. In a down-to-earth way. So Because she could make a living with fine art. Exactly. But what an impact she made on everybody. In a sense, it, it explains everything, you know? It does. Because she really... Uh, I mean, I, I thought that she was brave when she opened the store downtown. You know, I mean, that, that, that takes... Yeah. And, and she was brave. 
And she was, and the store is still there. I know. And there's one in River Ranch, too. Exactly. (laughs) Which is really ironic. (laughs) (laughs) They were brave to go there, too, I think. Yeah, me too. We do wish them well. So I'm so I'm so glad that you said yes, and I'm glad I got to know you today and, yeah. and about a lot of things. And um, and thank you for being a part of Le Cadeau. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank, thank you. you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to Le Cadeau Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup.